Now, yesterday we considered the fact we're all members of a fallen race. By nature, we're born children of wrath, excluding, of course, Our Lady. That because of Adam's sin, men are now born without sanctifying grace. And we considered the fact that in order to live the life of heaven, we have to be supernaturally alive. We have to have sanctifying grace. We saw that the most important thing that we'll ever do is die. If we die with supernatural life, we can live with the life of heaven. If we die without it, we can't. Today we'll consider the circumcision of our Lord. Not our way of thinking. That might seem like a funny thing to think about, let alone to celebrate. But the degree we think that way, that's the degree we don't think with the church, since this is one of the great feasts. So let's take a few minutes this morning to make sure we understand why this is such a great feast. To do that, we'll take a real quick look at a few things in the beginning that we've already considered in previous years. We'll look at circumcision in the Old Testament, our Lord's circumcision, and what this has to do with us. And finally, we'll consider another interesting point. Now, we're only going to hit the high points today. If you really want to make a lot more connections and you have the time, it would be helpful sometime to dig out the sermons on the precious blood, the sermons on baptism, Christmas, and New Year's from a year ago. Listen to those again. And if you're really ambitious, you could sit down and read St. Paul's letter to the Romans and his letter to the Hebrews. Okay. Having said that, circumcision in the Old Testament. We all know that God gave the commandment of circumcision to Abraham when he told Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's in Genesis chapter 12. That's the covenant of Abraham. He enters into this blood covenant with God. The sign of this blood covenant with God was circumcision. Now, why circumcision? The point was that Abraham was giving God of his personal blood from the very source of his fatherhood. What Abraham was doing at God's command is pledging himself and his seed, the tribe of all those who will be descended from him, in this blood covenant with God. In other words, Abraham is standing there in the place of all his descendants. And so this one man enters into this covenant with God on behalf of himself and all his descendants. Adam represented all his descendants from God. That's why we're here. That's where the mess comes from, what he did. Now Abraham is representing all his descendants before God. God accepts Abraham's blood sacrifice and rewards it by freeing all those in this covenant from original sin. In the Old Testament, circumcision on the eighth day freed the baby from original sin. So circumcision foreshadowed infant baptism. As that great saint and doctor of the church, the Venerable Bede says, quote, You ought to know that circumcision under the law wrought the same healing against the wound of original sin as does baptism in this time of revealed grace, except that under circumcision they were not able to enter the gate of the heavenly kingdom. Close quote. The venerable beat. So it forgives original sin, but it doesn't open heaven because heaven isn't opened yet. Pope Innocent III makes this same point. Quote, Although original sin was remitted by the mystery of circumcision, and the danger of damnation was avoided, nevertheless there was no arriving at the kingdom of heaven, which up to the death of Christ was barred to all. But through the sacrament of baptism, the guilt of one made red by the blood of Christ is remitted, and to the kingdom of heaven one also arrives, whose gate the blood of Christ has mercifully opened for his faithful, close quote, Pope Innocent III. Okay, we might wonder, why is circumcision of all things a fitting way to free men from original sin? 
Well, first off, as St. Paul makes clear in Hebrews 9.22, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Abraham is shedding blood from the very source by which original sin is passed on to his descendants. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, quote, original sin is contracted through the act of generation. Close quote. And since original sin comes from Adam, we all inherit original sin from our fathers. St. Thomas says, quote, original sin is contracted from the father, not from the mother, close quote. So now we can see why this is a fitting way to free men from original sin. We can also see why this pertained only to men in the Old Testament. Girls can be forgiven original sin in those days merely by offering them up to the Lord. Part two, circumcision of our Lord. All the commandments of the law perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, eight days after his birth, he was circumcised. Now, because Jesus was circumcised according to the law, he entered into that blood covenant between God and the seed of Abraham. Of course, our Lord didn't have original sin. He couldn't have original sin in the first place because he's God. Okay, it's blasphemous to even think it. In the second place, although original sin was passed down to each one of us, all the way down from Adam through our own father, Christ our Lord doesn't have a human father, okay? So absolutely speaking, although it wasn't absolutely necessary that the Blessed Virgin be immaculately conceived, since Christ didn't have a human father, still God got to make his own mother, and there's just no way he would have ever allowed a single stain to stain his Blessed Mother either. Okay, so why did he get circumcised then? St. Thomas Aquinas says, among other reasons, that this prevented the Jews from rejecting Christ for being uncircumcised, that it showed his willingness to accept the burdens of the law of Moses in order to obtain freedom for us, and that it demonstrated Christ's membership among the children of Abraham. Makes him one of the children of Abraham. Part three, how does this apply to us? Well, in our hand missiles, we see right there in the canon. In the canon of the Mass, we talk about our patriarch, Abraham, our father in the faith. Now, it doesn't matter for Croatian or Slovenian or Mexican or German or Irish or French or Spanish or Indian or anything, any of the tribes of man, unless we're actually of Hebrew descent, we might wonder, how can Abraham possibly be our patriarch, our father? How is it that Abraham became our father? How does that work? Let's see. We've seen that baptism takes the place of circumcision. We all know that baptism washes us free from original actual sin. We know by the virtue of our baptism, we're supernaturally united to Christ. We become members of Christ's mystical body. We're placed in the state of grace. We get that supernatural life. And so that means we share in and have one and the same life, this divine life of Jesus. All right, we know all that. So what? We already know that we don't have to get circumcised. We just get baptized. What does that have to do with the Feast of Circumcision? Circumcision was a ceremony that only applied to the descents of Abraham, and its power to forgive original sin ended 20 centuries ago. All right, so what? Well, God promised Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The sign of that promise was circumcision. And we received that promise because we've been baptized. Now, wait a minute, Father. You left something out there. How does the sign of God's... If the sign of God's promise to Abraham is circumcision, and we receive that promise by baptism, how does that work? How does that work? When we're baptized, we entered into the life of Christ. We became members 
of his body, and he was circumcised on our behalf. By his circumcision, Christ was enrolled as one of the children of Abraham. He was enrolled as an heir to the promises given to Abraham. That means that when we are incorporated into Christ by our holy baptism, we ourselves also became heirs to the promise of Abraham. That's what St. Paul means in Galatians 3 and Colossians 2 when he says, For as many of you have been baptized that put on Christ, in whom also you are circumcised, with circumcision not made by hand, but in the circumcision of Christ. So on the eighth day when our Lord was circumcised, he became an heir to the promises of Abraham. And by our union with Christ our Lord, we all become not only adopted sons of God, but adopted sons of Abraham. We can truly call Abraham our patriarch, our father in faith. And by celebrating the great feast of circumcision, we're celebrating the fact that already at only eight days of age, Christ our Lord underwent this little suffering on our behalf all those that are not descended from the Hebrews, so that we could be recipients of the promises made to our father Abraham. Quick review of this section. We've seen that God promised to Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him, that Abraham entered into this blood covenant with God, a family relationship with God, and the sign of the blood covenant was circumcision. By circumcision on the eighth day, the descendants of Abraham became heirs to his promises, and shedding of blood freed them from original sin. We've seen that Christ our Lord became an heir to those promises by his circumcision. Now by our baptism, we become members of Christ and therefore heirs to the promises, spiritual sons of Abraham, free from original sin, and capable of entering that heavenly promised land. Okay, part four, the Jews. In order to really appreciate the significance of the circumcision, we have to spend a few minutes this morning talking about the Jews. We'll briefly discuss four commonly misunderstood topics. One, anti-Semitism. Two, biblical Judaism. Three, the relationship between Catholicism and biblical Judaism. And four, rabbinic Judaism. One, anti-Semitism. Many Catholics are completely confused as to the correct meaning of anti-Semitism. We'll start by stating a few things it does not mean. Anti-Semitism does not mean opposition to the Jewish religion. It does not mean opposition to the behavior and or policies of powerful Jewish individuals, whether in business, media, or government. It does not mean opposition to Zionism. It does not mean opposition to the behavior and or policies of the state of Israel. Okay, then what does anti-Semitism mean? We'll answer that by quoting a reply given by the Holy Office in 1928. The Holy Office is now called the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Until recently, it was headed by Cardinal Ratzinger. Okay, this is an official definition of anti-Semitism given by Rome. The Holy Office, quote, As the Apostolic See condemns every form of hatred and jealousy between nations, so in a special manner it condemns hatred of the people once chosen by God. This hatred is commonly designated as anti-Semitism, close quote. I'll repeat that. As the Apostolic See condemns every form of hatred and jealousy between nations, so in a special manner it condemns hatred of the people once chosen by God. This hatred is commonly designated as anti-Semitism. Three things to notice about this Roman definition. First, note the use of the phrase, the people once chosen by God. This is critical to understand. Why does the church call the Jews the people once chosen by God? Because they are no longer the chosen people. They aren't. No. Well, who is? We are. That's the whole point of today's feast. 
That's why it's such a great feast. We're the true legitimate heirs of Abraham and his promises. Second point, notice that the church condemns every form of hatred and jealousy between nations. All nations. In other words, just as every form of hatred and jealousy between men as individuals is condemned, we already know that, okay, so also these same sins are condemned between nations. Third point, hatred of the Jewish nation is condemned in a special manner by the church. Why? The late great Thomistic theologian Father Faye answers, quote, Because they are the nation and race in which the word became flesh. Our Lord is a Jew of the house of David. This hatred of Jews as a people is commonly designated by the term anti-Semitism, close quote. So the true meaning of anti-Semitism is it is a hatred of Jews as a race, as a particular people. In other words, anti-Semitism is a particular type of the sin of racism, and racism is always wrong. Okay? But we must also see clearly that it's not anti-Semitic or sinful for us to be opposed to Jewish political influence, Jewish business or financial influence, Jewish cultural influence, or especially Jewish religious influence, any more than it's sinful for us to be opposed to these same things with Islamic influences in these same areas. This needs to be understood. Pope Pius XI makes this point perfectly clear. Quote, It's impossible for Christians to be anti-Semites. By this he means it's impossible for us to do it without sinning. It is impossible for Christians to be anti-Semites. But we acknowledge that everyone has the right to defend himself. In other words, to take the necessary precautions for his protection against everything that threatens his legitimate interests. Close quote. The Vicar of Christ. So if the ADL is screaming bloody murder about a particular uh, Catholic event or something, it's not being anti-Semitic to oppose them. They need to be opposed. The Pope, it is impossible for Christians to be anti-Semites, but we acknowledge that everyone has the right to defend himself. In other words, to take the necessary precautions for his protection against everything that threatens his legitimate interest. Okay, second point. Biblical Judaism. Biblical Judaism, this is the religion that came into being with a covenant between God and Abraham, which received the laws and liturgical ceremonies from God on Mount Sinai, and which ended some 40 years after the crucifixion with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This religion no longer exists. It's extinct. It's gone forever, period, close the book. It's gone. Third point, the relationship between biblical Judaism and Catholicism. It'll be clear where it went. Catholicism is the fulfillment and the perfection of biblical Judaism and has superseded it, which is precisely why biblical Judaism no longer exists. We have the true high priest, our Holy Father, the Pope. We have the true priests of God the Catholic priesthood. We have the true Levites. Those are the deacons. We have the true sacrifice, which is pleasing to God, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We have the true temple, the Catholic churches scattered throughout the world. We're the heirs to the promise. We're now the chosen people. It's no longer a question of bloodlines. It's no longer a question of a natural life which was inherited naturally, but it's a question of supernatural life which is given to mankind by grace. Fourth point, rabbinic Judaism. Judaism as it exists today, rabbinic Judaism, was originally created by the very Pharisees who, like St. Paul before his conversion, refused to believe in our Lord. 
As one Israeli intellectual has recently noted, quote, Professor Israel Yuval of Hebrew University proved that rabbinic Judaism came out of the ruins of the old temple-centered biblical Judaism, practically at the same time as Christianity. Christianity actually superseded biblical Judaism and became the faith of millions. Still a small band of men challenged its advent and altered, offered an alternative, rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism produced its own holy books, the Mishnah and the Talmud, as Christianity produced the New Testament. Professor Yuval wrote, quote, The biblical Judaism died and two religions claimed to be the legitimate heir, Christianity and rabbinic Judaism. Thus, the Judaism we know of is a jealous sister, not a mother faith to Christianity. Its practitioners are not the people who remain faithful to the old religion, as the biblical Judaism with its sacrifices, Jerusalem temple, ritual purity, tithes, and priests disappeared 2,000 years ago. It is a new faith, explicitly made to fight Christianity. Jews aren't just non-Christians, like we're non-Buddhist. They are anti-Christian. Even now, when the majority of Jews have ceased to practice the rules of the faith, this anti-Christian streak is not gone. For instance, a baptized Jew is banned from receiving Israeli citizenship by the law of return. Close quote, Israel Shamir. This was written by a man who is a convert from rabbinic Judaism to Greek Orthodoxy. The important points points out that rabbinic Judaism comes out of the ruins of the old temple-centered biblical Judaism as a direct challenge to Christianity. The leaders were the leaders that rejected Christ. Huh? It produces its own books, the Mission and the Talmud, just as we produced the New Testament. Two religions both make the claim to be the legitimate heir to biblical Judaism. That's us and rabbinic Judaism. So the Judaism we know is a jealous sister, not a mother faith to Christianity. It's a new faith explicitly made to fight Christianity. Modern Jews are not the people who remain faithful to old religion, since biblical Judaism with its sacrifices, Jerusalem temple, ritual purity, tithes, and priests disappeared 2,000 years ago. Modern Jews are not the chosen people. The fact that being a member of the chosen people is no longer limited to them is the whole point of today's feast. This feast celebrates the fact we no longer have to be members of the Hebrew nation. We no longer have to be physically descended from Abraham in order to become children of the promise. We no longer have to be physically descended from Abraham in order to become the real heirs of Abraham. That even though we may not be Hebrew, we are now each members of the chosen people. We're celebrating the fact that to be a member of the chosen people is not a question of bloodlines, It's no longer a racial issue. Our Lord has done away with all that. The real division of mankind is now whether or not we are members of Christ, whether or not we've received adoption as the sons of God by which we become heirs to the promise of Abraham. So modern Jews are not the chosen people, but they still can be. How? By becoming Catholic, just like the rest of us. In the kingdom of God, the bloodlines no longer matter. It's not a racial issue. We're the chosen people. And we long for the day when the Jews and all of mankind will join us kneeling before the crib of our Savior.